Welcome to the Movies on the Brain podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brian C. Wood. With me this evening in the hours after dark. Yeah, minutes. Welcome to another weird, wild, and wacky week in the world of Polka Dot News. So, Chad, we have now officially seen The Suicide Squad in, all of, its, in all of its bloody glory. Um, your thoughts, sir, on the spectacularly singular movie that James Gunn made? Um, it's clearly a James Gunn movie in all of the the good ways, and um, I don't know, I'm still trying to tabulate where I put it in the grand pantheon of things, but I had a a very good time with it, and I'm looking forward to seeing it again, even though technically it is on right next to me as we speak, thanks to HBO Max. But uh, let's watching it again real soon to go through the whole thing again. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, there's a lot there. Um, and a lot of blood <laughs> and a lot of everything. Uh, but, I mean, this is different from Guardians um, yeah. in, a lot of, in, in a lot of ways. But, like, um, it, it's some ways it's better than Guardians. In some ways it's, it's not. And it's just, it's different. And I think that that's the key word. I mean, we can't put anything past the filmmaker who made a, a, a short film in movie 43 about a cat running over Elizabeth Banks and then trying to shoot Elizabeth Banks after having um, masturbated to its owner. So, I mean, we can't put anything past that guy. Um, giant uh, starfish or not, not unexpected. But uh, this is definitely different. This is not, this is not your sanitized James Gunn. No, no, and I don't know if I would like if I would use the word sanitized for his his guardian stuff. I just think it's it's different. Like, is he taking on geopolitics and the use of dictatorships and coups in Marvel films? I don't think so, sir. The man has very specific things to say about American imperialism that he's not saying in his Marvel movies. Well, yeah, well, yeah. Um, but when people have been using the word to like, uh, um, they haven't really used sanitize, but they've said, you know, this is like James Gunn Unchained. I think they're speaking more towards the 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 gory bloodiness of it all. Uh, as if he would make a Guardians film in that realm if he wasn't shackled by Marvel. And I just don't think that's the case. I think Guardians is the that film he wanted to make and he wanted to do something different, but in the same kind of in the same vein. And this is that he can do more than one thing. There the main difference is you're dealing with to use to use a popular phrase. Uh, not nice people. Um, you're, the guardians are goofballs, and they're uh, they're misfits, and they're versions of experiments and things. But what they what none of them are. Peter Quill is not bad by any stretch of the imagination. He hasn't really done bad things, um, even when he was with Yondu. Um, Gamora is not bad. She turns from her. She realizes what her father is and tries actively to work against him you know rocket raccoon is not seeking revenge on those who you know experimented on him 
He's just going around palling around the galaxy with a giant tree who has no qualms with anybody. So, I mean, they're not morally dubious people. They're just a bunch of goofballs and outcasts. Um, you know, there's a difference between that and what we see, what the Suicide Squad, by their very nature, both teams of the Suicide Squad that are in this movie um, are. They are, by nature, uh, the baddest people on the planet, some of the nastiest. I mean, um, uh, you know, Viola Davis points out later in the movie, later in the movie that, you know, they have that particular prison has one of the highest mortality rates in the U.S. because, you know, they send their prisoners out on suicide missions. I mean, they're morally dubious people, some of whom have different stories for how they're morally dubious, but they are all morally dubious people. And that's a different dynamic than the Guardians. I don't think, you, I don't think in any way you can make this movie with the Guardians. I just, no. you just, that's no. not who they are. No, I, I would agree with that point. Um, the, it's morally dubious, I think is the right word, even though I would think there are a few characters that are better than others in this. Uh, but for the most part, I would agree with that. Um, yeah. I do uh, enjoy the line. Can you believe they, they called rats weapons? It got me on armed robbery. They considered rats a weapon. Well, I mean, considering what happens later, I think they kind of got those charges right. However, she was only, I mean, she was just robbing a place. It, of the list of things the rest of these people did, it's kind of low on that list. All right. So let's get on with our talk about this movie. Um, before we get into its full context and body, as both of us are professional wrestling fans, Grade our boy John Cena on his uh, performance as Peacemaker. Coming to an HBO Max series near you. No, I wish I had seen Fast 9 before I saw this so I can like compare and contrast. Um, but I thought he did a good job considering, you know, they described him the whole time as like douchebag Captain America. And and you can you see it, particularly in that scene with uh with him and, and Bloodsport and their they're trying to one up each other and and killing these guys in this uh in this camp, and the the douchebaggery of him kind of rolls off there, and then you know he has to do what he's never done in wrestling is a, a true heel turn at the end. Uh, yet he remains the same. Like the the character, like the character is like the John Cena character, but. If his, if he tinted towards, like if he didn't know who he was and the things that he wanted to do were like morally wrong, but he thought he was doing it for the right reason, because he's still jingoistic and all that crap, but uh, he's just too, too blinded and too stupid to realize he's doing the wrong things, even though he thinks he's doing it for the right reasons. But I thought I li I like John. He's corporate John Cena. The Rock turned heel and joined the corporation and did Vince McMahon's bidding. He's he's John Cena. He, he's he's a version of a character who just takes the Nuremberg defense to an extreme. The Nuremberg defense is always, well, we were just following orders. 
Yeah. We didn't question the orders. We didn't, you know, uh, pontificate on what the ramifications of those orders would be. We were just following orders. Mm -hmm. And that defense has never held up in court because you have, you know, free will (laughs) and human decency, allegedly. And you understand that, you know, funneling people into a giant furnace, probably not a good thing. Um, But, you know, it's... There are people like that. It's not that far off from Jack Nicholson's character in A Few Good Men. You know? Um, yeah. You yeah. want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. You know, I protect this thin blue line. And while Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives because he was an incompetent Marine. Like, that's the viewpoint that those guys have. It's very, it's a very myopic view of, of right and wrong. And, um, they find ways to do the mental gymnastics. I think he, he gets comedy really well, um, which is something that you know about him if you've seen him do, uh, what was the Firehouse movie uh, that he did with the kid? Um, I forget the Nickelodeon movie with John Leguizamo. Yeah, th- that that and like if you've seen him do the Kids' Choice Awards before or if you've you've seen him do, um, you know, some of the, stand- some of the you know, the laughing bits that he's done on WWE television, you know, the guy can do comedy. Um, I liken this to a lot of people coming out of Thor Ragnarok being like, Oh my God, Chris Hemsworth's really funny. Um, Hello. Some of us have seen the female ghostbusters and vacation and knew the kid, the guy actually had a good sense of comedic timing, you know? And I think that, that's only going to grow with the peacemaker television series that he does, that he's already wrapped, um, which got the, post credit tag uh tease there at the end yeah i went from, um, I went from thinking that was a a prequel to, well i thought it was going to be a sequel series then a prequel and then back to a sequel series at the end so i mean i think it's i think people's perceptions of cena are only going to grow and in the more projects he's booked he's already booked a, a ton for the next two years so mm-hmm. he's, he's going to be He's going to be a really great actor uh, or really great presence in acting. We'll see if he ends up taking off the way the rock did the second time. Yeah. Um, his rock hit that rough patch where he had to go do the Disney movies before he came back as the rock. So, you know, we'll, we'll see, but overall I would say that John Cena was not a hindrance to the movie and actually had some of its best lines. I would agree. All right, Chad, so let's start off where we always do, crowd size. I had uh, 35 people with me. I think mine was about that much. Um, I didn't do a count before we started, and I forgot to do it before the the movie uh, started on the app, so I couldn't count there. But I think that's 35, 40 is about what it was. And notably on this one, unlike Black Widow, which once I got out of my showing, there were a lot of people moving around. This one didn't have that, but it also, Black Widow let out around 7.30. This one didn't get out till 9.30. So yeah, and your, your screening was also, your, your screening also was for some reason 15 minutes later than mine. Um, ours, the, the IMAX here was 7.15, so. I was 15 minutes ahead of yours. Mine started at seven. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see what the final numbers look like, especially with the HBO Max option and with them pushing the preview 
because this is the first time that the HBO Max version is dropping the night before um, the actual release date. Because, of course, Thursday previews have always been a thing in theatrical releases. Mm -hmm. They're now becoming a thing in streaming releases. Yeah, I was surprised to see that. So, um, and James does not seem to be a filmmaker who's, like, pissy about the way this is being released, uh, which I think is a good thing, so... Uh, he, I mean, it's been months, but he he really wants it seen in the theaters. But he's not like putting up a fuss like like Nolan was and stuff. I think he understands. Yeah, he's not he's not doing a Nolan or Vianville where it's like you guys tricked me. Like I thought I was making a movie for the big screen, and you're gonna put us on the small. Look, I can tell you straight up, Dune is the unfilmable novel. The last guy to do it, like the movie bombed, and he almost quit directing. And the guy before that couldn't even get it to film. So, like, it's been deemed the unfilmable novel. And Bienville, from everything I've seen, has done it, done it well. And that, if you get nothing else from those trailers, you get the sense that you cannot, under any circumstances, appreciate this film sitting on your your iPhone or your laptop. Yeah. If you have a good TV setup, maybe. But, like, this is a movie designed for the big screen. And one of the things that I'm happy about with the HBO Max release is it's going to be so dense and there's going to be so much uh, exposition and info dump in that movie that you're going to have to watch it two or three times to get it. So I'm glad that I don't have to pay to see the movie three times in order to understand it fully. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, you said, since you said Dune, uh, what trailers did you get just out of curiosity? Um, so I got Free Guy. I got Dune. I got uh, Shang-Chi and Legend of the Ten Rings. And um, and I got that Hugh Jackman movie, uh, Reminiscence or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, did you get Candyman? No, did not okay. get Candyman. So we got all of the same ones except I got Candyman and you missed that one. Uh, yeah, this is your plug for Nia DaCosta, who's entering the land of Marvel after this. Yep. And it looks really, really interesting, and I'll never see it to know. All right, Chad, so let's get to our good, our bad, and our not-so-good for this particular entry into the DC Cinematic Universe. Your thoughts, sir, and let's start with our good. So our good is it, so much good, but I'll just I'll sum it up generally with uh, the entire, I'm going to give it to the entire cast, and more of a with James Gunn, because this is like his third time working with a group of people, and he knows how to, he seems to know how to handle juggling multiple characters, doing multiple things at multiple different times. Uh, the main cast that we get, um, because uh, spoiler alert, while we shown, we're shown a very large squad for Suicide Squad, uh, we don't have many of them for very long. So the, what, seven eight that we have he's juggling them the whole time and they're all doing the they he has roles for all of them he knows how to flow into like create the story to get the most out of all of these people doing all these different things um my special send out is going to be of many but just to focus on this for now is uh actually rat catcher too I'd heard was the heart of the movie and that turned out to be very much true um, 
her damn backstory. You know, I'm a big softy now, so that struck a chord with me. And yeah, that uh, she was very she was very good. The story that they told her is very good. Uh, the actress was very good, and again, the whole ensemble. That's the only way this works is if it's a true ensemble and you can manage all these different people and they did that well. Indeed. Uh, and that was Taika Waititi's cameo. Yeah. I kept forgetting. I, I knew he was in it and I kept forgetting it and I saw his name in the credits and then I forgot about it. And then he showed up like, Oh, that's where he's at. Speaking of credits, we'll get to it in a bit, but I noticed uh, besides Zach and uh, Deborah on the, uh, on the, produced by i also noticed that uh the next to the very last credit that you see before the post credit singer is the list of people that the uh filmmaker would like to thank guess who's on that list who david air ah good david air is on that list and that was i thought very a very nice gesture and a very good thing to do good job james all right so my good would be King Shark. I need all the King Shark materials that I can get. Give me a spinoff series. Give me a bunch of dolls, plush toys. You know, can, maybe you can have him in one corner and Alligator Loki in the other. Just completely <laughs> adorable folk. Uh, you know, um, Stallone has great timing with the character. Um, he's cute. He's adorable. He also eats people. Lots of people. You just ate somebody um, on my screen, so that that was yeah. It, it's a really fun time and a fun character, and the design is great. And I laugh every time I see him. And I got worried there for a minute when the building fell on him, but then he, you know, just casually walks back and joins the others. So I'm like, okay, great, we get more of this dude. It's awesome. It, it, I need it, more King Shark. We don't need was, our friends. It was when uh, the the little fish thing started going at him. Like, oh, this they're gonna take him out like this. That I got concerned, but uh yeah, that's you know. that's when I got concerned when it was like feeding time and like which was their version of Hulk Smash, and then he just jumps up and just starts eating, and then he gets swished into the building, <laughs> and I'm like, um, darn it! And then oh, then he you know comes out of the rubble. I also liked how they set up the the uh the spear thing that you know you were worthy to possess the spear, kind of like you were worthy to possess the hammer. And she doesn't know what it's for. And then she figures out that she needs to do a pole vault with it. So, Because we were dealing with Starro, I, I just knew that that spear was going in his eye at some point. I didn't know how it was going to happen, but I knew that's where it was going. So uh, when she, especially when she made a big deal out of him, like, oh, okay. So that thing is going right through the eye. Didn't expect everything else that happened with it, but, you know, we'll get to that. Um. But yeah, that would be King Shark is definitely my favorite part of this film, and it's all, he's awesome and amazing in all the right ways. And him interacting with the jellyfish before they start attacking him is just pure fun and just a, a great James Gunn moment. Um, and then I just found it wholly interesting. You know, it, it's just a lot of fun. I love my animal creatures. Well, you know, I like King Shark. Actually, I like King Shark quite a bit. Uh, I did not actually find him adorable. Um, I didn't find him terrifying either, but he was just, you know, he's very childlike, but not like, it's not an innocent childlike because he will just up and eat somebody. 
but it what he you know James has Rocket and Groot and they are both kind of adorable in their own ways. I don't know what I would describe King Shark as, but while I enjoy him, I didn't find him adorable, but I did see his the fearsomeness in him. This is a I would equate um King Shark in this to being his Drax because he has a lot of the humor elements and the dry wit that that he Drax has in the role that Drax plays in that that group dynamic. I, I can get with that. I also was I also was pleasantly surprised at uh, at Harley being separated from every, Harley and Rick Flag being separated from everybody. I thought that was a, a unique twist when everybody just assumes that she's going to be, you know, this starring role um, and be you know leading the team. And then it's like, oh wait, we have to go get the guys from the last movie. Yeah, I don't. Well, I didn't hate that particularly with Flag, but Flag isn't gone as long as Harley. Like, I turned the movie on like right before we started, and they've already got him back. Um, but with Harley, it's like they gave her something to do, and it actually it actually fit within the story. But it's. It's almost too separate for yeah. me. Yeah, it, it, it's, 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 she goes off and does her side adventure and then comes back into the movie. And that's, it's a very weird juxtaposition. And that'll, that'll feed into some of my not so good and my bad. But like, just, you know, her coming back in uh, was great. And in the way that she interacted with the whole dynamic. And I'm thrilled as a, as a man who loves John Milton, I was thrilled to have an entire conversation about a man named Milton uh and and who he was and that he sacrificed himself to save people uh you know even though harley quinn did not know who he was still didn't know but yeah uh, yeah. yeah i mean I, I guess i guess that harley quinn stuff is actually my not so good again it's nothing it's nothing with harley itself it's nothing with margot robbie i think this is probably she's been good as harley in everything she's been in because the movie's actually better than the other ones. This was probably her bet her best Harley Quinn she's ever she's ever been. It's just it feels that middle part feels so removed. Like it's it's very it's just ever so tangentially connected to this. And it's just, it's his own Harley Quinn solo story, which is fine. Um it doesn't take me out too much, but I am aware that we just for like 30 minutes we're just solely harley and it's enough to just again not completely take me out of the movie but make me switch on that i'm aware that this is going on so like does she make that promise in in birds of prey it's been a hot minute since i've been but since i've seen birds of prey um but it's does she make that promise to the next dude that she sees she's just that raises a red flag or crosses the line she's going to kill. Did she no. make that promise in Birds of Prey? I'm pretty sure she didn't. I'm pretty sure there's something that she just thought of for this. Uh, I mean, it's it's dramatic. It's impactful. And the journey that she goes on is very impactful and meaningful. Um, but us, the, the thing that bothers me about Harley's presence in this movie is if you take her killing the dictator out of the film, 
what's her role? Aside from like stabbing the starfish in the eye, like what other big hero moment does she have where she's like the focal point and like that you would walk out of the movie talking about Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn? Because that's that to me is the issue is that if you take that bit out, she doesn't do a whole lot in any of the other films. Yeah, that's the thing. All of her like hero moment, moments, as you put it, they're all tied to that scene. Because I would say her escaping from being tortured, that's a big moment. But again, it's tied to to this. Um, she has nothing, nothing like that with the team. Now the story kind of gives you an excuse for that because she was sent, she was sent with the jobbers to die on the other side of the island. And she just so happened to make it and catch up with them. So there was no part for her to play in this plan. She just happens to still be alive. So the story gives you an out, but looking at it, looking, looking at, at it, it in the of context that, of looking at it in the context of a cinematic story, um, that that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's and it's, but it's not the worst thing for me, but. That's probably because the, you know, even though it is a almost separate thing, the story is at least entertaining and Margaret Robbie is really good as Harley Quinn. So you can kind of forgive it, but, you know, it, you know, it's there. So my not so good would be tied into this in a way. Um, and that is I am not a fan of James Gunn's story, uh, story choices here in, in the sense of structure. Um. The eight minutes ago or the earlier thing, 15 minutes earlier, eight minutes earlier, it interrupts the flow. It it doesn't linearly work. Like there's no real point to it. Like when you do a time jump of any kind of significance, it it mainly is in there to kind of for an important reason. Like, okay, I'm gonna start at the end. Then I'm going to go back to the beginning and show you how we got here. And then I'm going to finish the story from there. It's not, hey, eight minutes ago, this thing happened. And this is why the ceiling collapsed. And this is like, it. it you could have just intercut and shown me the stuff that was going on so that I could follow linearly and it would have been the same story. Like the time jump doesn't, do anything for dramatic effect or for the story itself. Like the, the change in story structure is just there to be a change in story structure. It, and I guess you could argue that it's there to provide hero moments. For example, with Idris at the end, saving the girl from John Cena, like that his hero moment is right there. And, but again, that build up to that moment is linear. Like if you once you start the time jump and you go back to the eight minutes, every step of the story leads to that moment, the same way it would have if you'd have intercut with other things. Um, I, it didn't give the story good flow to me. It kept kept making me have to remember things that happened to get us there. Like you do the whole you do the whole fake out with the team, right? And then you do the oh by the way. Three months ago, or three days ago, or whatever it is, I also I also am not a fan in this case of the chapters. Um, <laughs> like that's a Tarantino thing. 
let's leave it to the ones who do it really well. Uh, this is not an actual comic book. You don't need to give us chapter titles. Um, but like, yeah, man, like the the story structure, you do the fake out with the team and then you're you're like three months ago and then you cut to how the team came together while they're doing the whole thing and you set up them and the realization that there were two teams and one was meant to die as a distraction so the other one could get what they need done. And it's just like, you could have just played that out from the beginning and it would have worked the same way. I just, I'm not a fan of, I'm okay with bold story choices and bore and bold um, story st structure if it's unique and different and interesting in a way that helps the story, not when it's just done for comic book effect, basically. Yeah, I think uh, looking at it as a whole, that is probably my bad because like some of the transitions were kind of cute. Um, I can't, I actually can't think of any off the top of my head, but, uh, well, I guess the, the, the switcheroo, you know, that one works. If, it, if that was the only one, I probably wouldn't have a problem with it, but, uh, you do it three other times in the movie. Yeah. And, and the, the last one with Buzz, Blood Sport is yes, it's strictly to have the, the hero moment to build a suspense that, uh, Peacemaker is going to kill Ratcatcher, and then to see how we get to a point where Blow Up Support can stop him. And then the, you know, the chapter transitions, a couple of those are cute. I can't think of any off the top of my head that, uh, that were cute enough to, for me to actually like remember. But all the other ones, as I'm watching, I'm like, it just makes me aware of that we're in the movie instead of me just being in the movie. So I, I would, that's probably, yeah, that was probably the thing I didn't like the most. And it, it stuck out as we kept going on that I knew people would keep doing it. So I kept watching out for it. And it kept me being aware that I'm watching for these things instead of just watching the movie. Or being immersed in in the story. Mm -hmm. um, and the other, the other thing too, for like, here's here's the thing for me i don't always like gimmick filmmaking like cool you can film a movie over the course of 12 years with one boy and one and two adults cool awesome that's a lot of dedication good on you link letter um i can take leonardo dicaprio and go up to the wilderness and shoot in, in british columbia and natural all natural light cool Inaratu. great job Glad to see Leonardo DiCaprio wrestling a bear. Like, if it aids your story, then it's worth it. If it serves the story, if it helps the story be better, if it accentuates the story in a positive way, great. If that one cut shot of the of Loki and Sylvie running through the, the city to, to try and get to the to the ship before it leaves, that that was supposed to be look like a one cut that one shot works because it aids the story and it sucks you in and it gets the tension going and you know, all the things. But if it doesn't serve the story, there's just a fancy one cut that shows you can do great editing. You know, it, it just, it, it's that great line from Jurassic Park, just because we can 
doesn't necessarily mean that we should. And it's like too clever by half. Like if it doesn't serve your story, your story should be your central focus. Your character development should be your central focus. And if it's not helping those two things, it doesn't have to happen. Agreed. You said it all. I can't really add anything to it. That That's... Because otherwise you're just being a glorified asshole. You're just being like, <laughs> look at, you're just being like, look at me and look at the camera and look at the things that I can do with it. Like, you know, look at, look at my makeup artists and look at all the wonderful things I can get them to do. Like, it, it's like, okay, cool. But your story sucks. So why do I care about this very fancy camera lighting? You know, it just, it, it's it's a pain and it's something that I, I very much dislike in filmmaking because it, it detracts from what we're all there, which is the storytelling yeah. and the character development. Gotcha. So go with, what is your bag? Go into more detail about these transitions because, I mean, like, once I saw them, I was, like, okay with it because I'm, I'm a Tarantino, I've seen many Tarantino films, so I understand chapter structure. But like even some of the chapter breaks weren't very even to me. Um, the care, the design of them were cool, but you know, yeah, I, yeah, I'll give them that. The, the designs were cool with like uh, some of the sweeping effects and stuff like that. I, Dirt, dirty little secrets. Yeah, that one stood out to me. Even though I don't think that was, I don't think that one was the coolest one. There's one. I dirty little say, secret operation. And then they change it when it's Operation yeah. Harley. Yeah, is that I think is that with fire or like smoke that was or something? Fire. Yeah, yeah, like that one. It, it stood out to me, but again, because it's it's standing out to me, it's it's pulling me out of the movie. And like you called them chapters, I wouldn't even, I didn't even think of them as chapters because there isn't. It's like there's almost no rhyme or reason to them being chapters until. We get to the end with a uh, dirty little secret and Suicide Squad versus Starro. Um, but like, yeah, like one just showed up on the screen. It's uh, bring me the head of Su- the Suicide Squad. The way it's done is cool because it's written in the dirt, and then Polka Dot Man's head falls into it, so it looks cool. But again. That one's not so bad because I think it's it's tailing off of what the general has just is that's continuing his thought. So again, that's why I didn't think of it as a chapter. It's like, oh, we're just going to do this cute way of continuing the general's thought without him saying it, and it transitions to our uh, our our heroes going about their business and whatever. But it just every time there's almost not a time that happens that it doesn't pull me out of the movie, except uh, the very last one, Suicide Squad versus Starro, because at that point, I know it's like the final battle time. So you can put that up there. It doesn't take me out because I know that's what's about to happen. And I'm really intrigued to see how these people are going to beat that thing. So I don't mind him trying to do this in this one, I just don't think it worked all the time. Uh, there's some of them that it, there's probably a few of them that did work the way as intended. And I saw it and was like, kept going, didn't think anything of it. But most of them, 
if you got to maybe think about, oh, that's a cool effect for you saying this or whatnot, it pulls you out of the movie, which is not what you want to do. Especially in a movie like this where you're going to want to get lost in the immersion. Yeah. Um, but like for me, having seen Tarantino do it, Tarantino uses it as natural act breaks. So like most times he'll, he'll break them up into just act one, act two, act three. Um, it's why um, it was easy to break up Hateful Eight into a miniseries because you could just do the chapters because um, those were naturally written in there. Um, and and I, I get it, but like not all the transitions are act breaks. They're more scene breaks, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. you're transitioning from one, one set of scenes to the next or one, one place, geographical place to the next. It's not necessarily like, okay, this is the end of Act 1, this is the end of Act 2, this is the end of Act 3 kind of thing. It's it's multiples. Um, so, I mean, it, and, and they don't always work. There's, some of them are coolly designed, but it, it again, it just kind of strikes me as something that's unnecessary and just is like, look at me and look at the, the cool effect I can do. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of what I felt watching it. That and I and I took it as comic book inspiration. You remember uh, twenty years, uh, fifteen years ago, Ang Lee getting dragged around for you know making his uh, making his his uh, scene his scenes look like panels of a comic book. Yeah, know, framing it like a comic book panel, like yeah. you know that that's that's this kind of thing. Is is chapters in a in a comic book story? I mean, with Ang, he was trying different things like with wipes and transitions uh that were just wipes and transitions it just did it in a comic booky way which is something i never i never had a problem with i actually enjoyed about that whole film and you know somebody can steal it now and probably get much more warmer reception by doing that but this because it's because it's like scene titles that's what that's what does it if it's if it was just creative ways to transition i wouldn't have thought anything of it yeah i just i just immediately thought back to tarantino and chapters chapter titles and then just comic books and chapter titles because they especially because they handed me a comic book as i walked in the in the door Mm -hmm. and like here's your here's your suicide squad comic written by james gunn and you know so that's, that's what drew me to the idea that they were chapter titles but um my not my bad. Well, what are we on bad? Right? Yeah, bad. Yeah, we're bad. We're on bad. Um, so I have two bads. The first of which would be Chad. I remember a time when Amanda Weller was keeping the heart of a woman in her chest and using it as leverage against said woman to do her bidding. And I seem to remember her staff being like pretty okay with that. Um, not having too much of an issue with it, um, not being morally concerned about the dubiousness of, you know, keeping around an ancient artifact around the, on the place that could be used to potentially kill a goddess if she didn't do her will. Uh, that seemed to have changed this time. Apparently killing women and children and threatening to throw innocent, well, sort of innocent people in jail is a bridge too far. By the way, I don't know if you noticed who that was. I noticed who it was when I, as soon as I saw the credits, but like, do you know who that is? 
the, the would, daughter. Oh yeah, that's Storm Reed from uh, A Wrinkle in Time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew. Um, I had seen. I saw the scene of like them arguing, so I knew she was in the movie. Um, you know, I kind of forgot, but then um, I saw her talking to James Gunn on Twitter, like at the premiere, and I saw her name, so I was like, "Oh yeah, I, I knew." But um, um, as for Amanda Waller, yeah, she got some better people around her this time, kind of to her detriment. Uh, which I. I mean, I'm fine with that because I don't believe that any of those people are in the first one. And the way and the way Waller is as a boss, I would imagine staff turnover is high. So, you know, I I get that part. And um Viola Davis as Amanda Waller, she is the worst person alive to try to do good things. Like, and that's how Amanda Waller is in the comics. You know she's trying to do good things but you absolutely hate her goddamn guts. And that's where she is in this movie. She is despicable. And I love every second of it. So I have no, I have no bad things to say about Amanda Waller. That's how she's supposed to be. Viola Davis is Amanda Waller, but she is terrible, awful. And I'm pretty sure we'll be making a cameo in the Peacemaker television series. She's got to. She has got to. But, uh, you know, this is also your plug to get me a Regina King directed Viola Davis movie. I don't know if I want a whole movie of The Wall, because then she's got to be more heroic. No, not, not, no, not, not uh, Waller. I'm just saying, give me Regina King directing Viola Davis and something. Oh, oh. I don't, I don't oh. care if it's an August Williams play or not. Give her, give me, give me those two working together behind the scenes. Give, give it time. Give it time. I think we'll get there. But uh, but yeah, I think Waller's going to definitely be back for Peacemaker, and I think that's going to be a, a good thing. And if you, you're going to carry it over, uh, I also liked the fact that one part of that I did like was setting it up with the putter and her putting in the office and then that coming back around. Oh, that's what she hit her with. She hit her with the, with the putter. Okay. I couldn't, Which she I couldn't drops tell. when she tells the other guy to stop being a dickhead and go fix the computers. Okay, uh, I, I like I, they just showed the the scene with her actually putting, and I I didn't put two and two together. I knew she got hit. I didn't know what it was, but yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. Uh, good good catch. So here's here's my bad, and I think there are going to be a lot of people who disagree with me, and that's fine. This things happen. I was sitting there and I was going through the film and I was like, you know, this must be what people were like when they watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Except for me and people who enjoyed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. For you see, Chad, Once Upon a Time a movie uh, in Hollywood is a hangout movie. It's You have to invest in Brad Pitt's character and in Leo's character and in Margot's character because if you don't care about them, you're not really going to care at the end when the Manson family comes in to do their thing. Like, you, 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 if you don't care about them, you don't worry about whether or not they're going to get killed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the young kids' complaint was that they were just kind of hanging out and they couldn't really get invested in Rick or Cliff or, or uh, you know, or any of the rest of it. Um. 
I had a hard time with character development in this movie. Like, even though everybody's story has kind of gone through piece by piece over the course of the film, I never really, like, connected to these guys in a way that, like, I connected to the Guardians. Like, there was never that simple thing, like, um, the best example I can give in the Guardians franchise is the moment in the original movie where um, Rocket has a shirt off and you see all the scarring on the back. And, you know, you've, you've heard about the lab experiments that have been, been portrayed on him, but that like really hits at home that he was, you know, been torn down and rebuilt literally. And you bond with him in his, his sorrow and his pain and agony and his anger at the world. There wasn't really that moment here for me with any of them. Um, and that the closest thing you get is rat is, is, you know, rat catcher, but mm -hmm. Like, even that is, you know, two minutes of Taika Waititi being a, you know, a heroin addict and, you know, her telling the story on the bus. Like, like I know Harley Quinn. I've been with Margot's Harley Quinn for a while. I'm definitely on board with her. But, like, at no point did I ever feel she was in danger of dying. He never really puts her in any position where you think she might die. Um, you know, even in the interrogation scene, you know that she's got something up her sleeve because it's Harley. Um, you know, the the blowing up thing, yes, that's a real thing, and you set that up the same way you did in the first movie by showing her actually pressing the button and blowing somebody up. But again, you you undercut that a little bit with the with the idea that these guys are just like, oh, she does it, she does it. You know, I just, I wasn't able to get on board and enjoy the ride with any of these folks. And that made the movie harder for me to engage with. Like the action stuff works. I'm there 100% for all the action stuff because Gunn shoots that stuff and frames it beautifully and is telling good story through action. And his geography is for the most part really good. You know where everybody is at all times. But like, damn it, man, like, I just really didn't honestly care if too many of these folks died. Like, you know, Polka Dot Man, like, gets killed the moment that he literally has a superhero moment, declares that he's a superhero. I should feel, like, heartbroken that that dude finally did the thing you wanted to do and just died. And instead, I'm just like, hmm, okay. Like, it, in a two-hour movie with uh, tons of exposition, exposition dumps, I shouldn't feel, I shouldn't feel, uh, you know, eh about a character at any point who dies. Um, I mean, I can see that. I, I think the only, the only two characters they really tried to do it with was was Ratcatcher, and to a lesser extent. Uh, blood sport with his daughter um but yeah if you don't if the moment with Ratcatcher and taika as her father doesn't catch you then then yeah there's really not anybody else character wise that will yeah because it's and it takes them coming back around to it like they just show the flashings in the window while she's telling the story in the bus it's when they come back around and he tells the story about rats being the lowliest 
and weakest of these and yet you know so too are we that you know that hits you well see with me i thought um yeah they only do the thing in the window but it's it's that plus her conversation with Bloodsport where they like recognize the good parts of like their counterparts in each other when uh they make like he sees the good he sees the good in her that he sees the good in his daughter whereas where she sees the good from her father in him and then they make the little pact that we're going to make sure we both get home like they, that's the moment if that moment doesn't catch you with those two characters the character development stuff for you to feel for them at the end it's just not going to be there because again i um i felt for polka dot man i wanted him to get out alive but yeah i did not when he died i didn't feel any like true disappointment that he didn't make it whereas when Ratcatcher is facing off with uh peacemaker and it looks like peacemaker is going to kill him i'm like I'm really racking my brain, like, how are they going to get her out of this? Because I don't want her to die. So it caught me, her character's arc caught me, into the, and to a lesser extent, so did Blood Sports in that same way. But I would agree, outside of those two, and Harley, there's not a whole lot. It's about the team rather than the rest of these characters. Yeah, and you're bringing the Harley stuff in with you from other movies, and you're bringing the Peacemaker stuff in with the knowledge that he's got a TV series coming on HBO Max. So, like, you just inherently know while while Gunn ran around for the last month talking about how no one is safe, you knew that there were certain people who were safe. But, like, I don't know, man. You just, in that dynamic, you just kind of have to care. And... Honestly, the only person I cared if they lived or they died was King Shark. And that might be a problem for your film. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's it's interesting. I'm glad for uh, for what's his name? Rick Flagg's uh, Joel Kinnaman. Joel, Joel yeah. I, I'm glad that he got a better a better go around and more to do and, and flushed out a lot more and better this go around. Um, but he, like, he was... He was so much better this time. Like I was, re- like he was another one. I was disappointed that he died, but mostly because I had seen him from the first one. Then I see him here, and he's so much better here. And he's a character that I would have loved to see, like be the, the thread through, each incarnation of Suicide Squad. So when he died, I felt something. But that's again, I've had, the first film baggage and seeing him, make this like, complete turn, like complete. Yeah, complete turn or he's just better in this one he's given more to do and he's given depth and shading which he's not given at all in the first movie yeah. and and that's the same with waller waller is intense in the first movie but she's given more depth and shading here and that's just the difference in screenwriter man like you have one voice instead of five or six yeah. in that writing in that writing process you have one and it makes a difference and especially when it's one who has a passion for the material and an understanding of the characters. But like, but like that, that was my bad is that like, if you don't engage with these characters, getting to the end with the starfish, it just is like, eh, you know, it, it's just a matter of who's going to stick around for the next one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Well, wait, are you done with your bat? I am done with my bat. Okay, so I got a couple things to. I, I, I want to go over a couple things. Um, you know, because we went all this time and we barely talked about the goddamn starfish at the end of this movie. Uh, which, so the the conceit of what Starro can do, like the fact that he is an alien that creates a, a hive mind. He latches on to other organisms to make them all part of him. That conceit is horrifying enough, but Starro himself is ridiculous. And there's a lot of ways that Starro can just come off as completely ridiculous and completely hokey and, and nobody cares. But James Gunn, he kept everything that is Starro and he made it like he played on the horrifying aspects of it and it worked. And that that in itself is a feat that is worth commending because again, we're talking about a giant freaking starfish. That is what this is. He's an alien starfish. And it can just go all kinds of wrong. But uh, this is all the credits to James Gunn for making Starro a terrifying prospect. Because you build it around fear and ethos. You get multiple people in this film who reference the fact that many people were sent to that stockade and never came back. That that it was it was there were rumors while the former regime was in place that if you crossed them then you ended up in this place and people never came back from it. And you you set up the government thing with the NASA scientists finding him and taking pictures with him and then, you know, having their faces eaten off. You show that you show that uh you know you show that footage there in in, in in the in the movie as well because he builds it around this ethos of alien basically um and you you build it around this political climate where you're literally talking about the nature of the cold war and about what countries were doing in an attempt to gain advantage and the fear that dictators use in order to maintain power um and then what also helps that is the scene where the the brainiac guy is walking um polka dot man and rat catcher through the stalls of all of these people who've been taken over by starfish over the years in order to make him larger and more powerful um because that was the whole idea the whole idea is that you know he, he's smallish when he's taken in by the astronauts, but by the time you get to 30 years of them feeding him humans, you know, he's ginormous and, Mm. and it hits home when, when she's like, we have to save these people. And she's, and he's like, there are corpses underneath those, those like to the point where you see a faceless person being still being eaten off of by one of the, the starfish, uh, tentacles. So like they drive the point home of the fear of the thing and they do considering what they did in the marketing materials, they did a commendable job of doing the jaws thing where you don't see him until the end. You see bits and pieces along the way, but you don't see him until the end. And I think that increases the fear of the thing 
because when you you don't see it but you hear all these things it builds it up and the design helps pay it off so yes very much a applauding of james gunn for keeping everything that's great about the character while also not completely leaning into the comic bookiness of it yeah because that would be an a very easy thing to do um considering the last movie had a gyrating witch as the big bad yeah um and i've i think i've touched on everybody else that i would have gushed on at some point during this especially uh viola davis so uh, I will go with um, the the company itself, DC. I would bravo to them for another good movie. Um, I think this is the their best movie since probably Shazam, and it should be a model for how they proceed with how they handle their DC films going forward, because this thing. While it is, they said it's, you know, not a sequel. This thing is a sequel to the first one, but they took the stuff they liked and they got rid of the stuff they didn't. And they didn't beat you over the head that it's a sequel. They just had little references. Like Harley says, um, Rick Flagg was my friend. The only reason she knows Rick Flagg is from working with him. She knew Boomerang. They had just a like, a glance and a, a a and like a brief exchange and bam, you know that they know each other. That's all this has to be. That's all they have to do going forward. They don't have to have convoluted um, resetting of times and and different versions of characters. Just take the stuff you like, get rid of the stuff you don't, and go from there. And if you want to make a big movie that you bring them together. Again, take what you like, leave what you don't, and let the person that's doing it know that you've got to, you've got to play with these toys. But then after that, I don't care. That's all they have to do. And we'll see. Um, I feel like they're doing the same thing with James that they did that they're doing with Matt Reeves. Here's your little corner. Here are your sandbox. Here are your toys. Go play. Make whatever you want to make. And uh, you know. But at the same time, you've got the Flash movie over here, you know, reconciling multiple timelines and bringing back Affleck's Batman and Keaton's Batman and doing all the things. And, you know, you've got a Joker 2 running around, you know, at Warner somewhere, and it's just a big jumbled mess. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be. Um, because I, everything out, everything you said that is not Batman-related, specifically Batman-related, they all still supposedly exist in the same world, but it doesn't have to be so totally wild like Marvels. Just do a movie like this, and that's it. Do a movie like this. Keep you can keep doing these. You can keep doing Suicide Squad, Suicide Squad movies every two to three years under the same premise. Oh yeah, I mean this one. This one is made for that, and the way these characters, because of who these characters are, they don't have to interact with anybody big like you know the justice league or whatnot but just you just use the same people and roughly the same places but don't you don't have to feel tied to anything that's all you got to do and they just have to make things more difficult than it has to be it as is the dc way in the warner brothers way yeah so before we go i'll drop my my uh gushing 
Um, the only thing that I wanted to gush about that I hadn't gotten a chance to is James Gunn's excellent taste in music and wonderful needle drop placement. And the fact that I got to hear a Decembrant song in a major motion picture that made me happy. Because I feel like there's only like five of us left on the planet who remember the Decembrants. And uh, and so I was I was happy to hear that in the second, like the second song that got dropped was a, a Decembrant song. And opening with Johnny Cash was also really good. I just, yeah. great needle drops. I mean, the man's becoming known for them. Yeah, I trusted his needle drops. I actually didn't know uh, most of the songs that were played, but it didn't bother me, and they all seemed to fit the way they were doing it. The the only ones I knew, I knew the Johnny Cash song, and I knew um, Louis Prima uh, with the Just a Gigolo. And if, for those that don't know, Louis Prima, voice of King Louis in the Jungle Book, just just throw that out there. But uh, that's the only two songs I knew. But it, it I'm was fine. Uh... But, but the thing that excites me about James Gunn doing these kinds of things is I've seen the resurgence in different artists and different songs that he's used in Guardians movies mm-hmm. that have become popular with a new generation because they're discovering that artist and that music through James's work because it's such wide, so widely seen. Um, and and so to have some a small group like the Decemberans who's in that, you know, Death Cab for Cutie time frame uh to get recognized and to to have people maybe google and research hell johnny cash for you know for for instance like fleetwood mac um you know some of the others that he's used across uh fathers and sons by you know all, all these different times cat stevens um all these different artists and songs that he's used in the marvel movie and the guardians movies and here again tonight um that might call somebody to Google somebody and pick up a new playlist. And I think that's a great thing. I would agree with you. Um, I've, there are lots of songs, like particularly from Guardians that I knew, but there are more songs that I've learned from them that uh, I've added to the rotation. So uh, a few more watches to this, I might add some of those too. Indeed. So that'll about do it for this week's podcast. You can follow us on Twitter as we prepare for the release of Free Guy. I am at PCW Tiger Fan. And I'm at The Mets Theory. And word of advice to all potential quarterbacks who are starting in the SEC this season. Don't trip over your own feet while carrying fishing materials and break your arm. It will prevent you from starting football games. He didn't trip over his own feet. He tripped over a flip-flop, which we've all done. So you know exactly how he did it. Yes, he he did it by bracing himself for his fall. That's exactly how he did it. <laughs> yeah, boy. That, that kid. Yeah, poor that deal kid. for that dude. Poor deal. Poor deal. Uh, that'll about do it for this week's episode. Thank you very much and have a pleasant evening. <laughs>